When you're an entrepreneur with a great idea, it can be daunting to find funding. Startup Raven takes the process out of your hands by helping entrepreneurs connect and learn about potential investors all in one place. Without any long-filled forms or thousand questions, Sign up for early access at StartupRaven.com. Welcome to StartupRad.io, your podcast and YouTube blog covering the German startup scene with news, interviews, and live events. Hello and welcome everybody and Happy New Year. It's the 19th of January 2023 and this is our first interview, our first piece for this year. I would like to welcome a, a may say steady guest, unofficial member of StartupRide.io, Paolo. Hey Paolo, how you doing? I'm fine, thank you and buon anno a tutti. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. As people can already tell, you are Italian, but our frequent listeners uh, will know that you're based in Frankfurt. Um, you have been there an entrepreneur, set up a company. We'll soon get a little bit into that. The company was bought up by IBM, and ever since, you are based there for IBM with changing titles, but you basically did the same. Your official title is as we established before the interview, now for three years, the global research leader in banking and financial markets for IBM Consulting. And of course, you're also a best-selling author. I was wondering, did you already make it to the New York Times bestseller list? <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good question. And now you may know well that banking books sell a lot when they talk about misbehavior of banks. I actually have the tendency of explaining how banks can behave good Bad sets more than good, but this one has been selling very well because banks and fintech on platform economies, uh, which is uh, my fifth book and bestseller, has been a number one or consistently within the number five top selling books on Amazon in the banking category over the last year. So definitely a book that resonated well worldwide, not only within the fintech community, so people that want to promote change, but also the highest level of CEOs uh, of uh, financial institutions reading the material and reaching out with comments. So that was very flattering to see that effectively the audience received the discontent uh, with the right uh, enthusiastic tone. Mm -hmm. Actually, we also know that we are also um, heard and seen because this is not only an audio podcast, this is not only an internet radio, but also a YouTube blog. Basically, we do run one recording and we use it for all of them. And um, we know our audience has a lot of decision makers, has a lot of investors, has a lot of entrepreneurs and founders across the world. Um, actually, at any given month, we are scoring in at least 25 podcast charts across the world. Right now, I would like to welcome uh, people from Ghana, Tunisia, and Egypt who have apparently not appeared on a podcast charts list before. Welcome, guys. Um, I've hinted you have been a fintech entrepreneur yourself. Um, can you tell us a little bit what you did before you got your most recent job? <laughs> <laughs> so that is actually the reason why I moved to Germany in 2008 uh, before uh, I was leading quantitative risk management departments uh, in capital markets and investment banking. 
And then after making so much uh, innovation in terms of financial innovation, I thought it was time to take care of uh, the small clients, uh, so the retail clients, uh, transforming the way they access financial services. And I moved to Germany to create um, a startup that was focusing on digital wealth management. So basically how to create new uh, engines to transform the conversation between the institution and the final client based on, uh, uh, if you like, better perspectives and more transparent uh, um, conversations. And this uh, small company, when I had 22 people in the payroll, a few clients was bought by IBM in 2013, 2012, end of 2012. And that's when I joined IBM. So for the last 10 years, I've been working in IBM. And uh, IBM said that uh, we actually look for uh, thought leaders, uh, so people that can uh, basically make an interpretation of uh, the industry trends. Uh, would you like to do that? Uh, and, and I remember I was in New York in 2013, and I said, what's a thought leader? And, uh, and they said, well, the head of consulting at the time, well, is somebody that you know, uh, has a good reputation and can write blogs. And I said, here, this one. Right. I am Italian. I'm 40 years old. What is a blog? <laughs> and so then I had to learn about the social media practice because I was not on social media at that time. And so I said, can I write books? And I said, I want to write on fintech because I think this is a super important topic for everyone, not just entrepreneurs, but also institutions. And that's where I started. But my, my literature, which is intersecting my role at IBM uh, at the different um, uh, investigation domains uh, from quant finance again to uh, digital world management till the last one, which is really foundational for everyone, is banks and fintech on platform economies, which designs um, the um, structure of uh, the transformation of the business models in the industry going forward, uh, looking at the intersection between information, data, yeah. and communication, people, and relationships. Um, it will be presented uh, in a few weeks uh, uh, to the European Commission, for example. I use it for my contribution to the supervisory, to the European Supervisory uh, Digital Finance Academy that takes place uh, in um, Florence for the uh, education of uh, the executives of the um, uh, European authorities. Just to give an example, it goes beyond Europe. So it's very important for regulators, for bankers, for startup entrepreneurs to understand what did not go well in the last 10 years and how to make sure that we generate value for everyone in the ecosystem going forward. Mm, I see. And Florence is pre pretty beautiful. So you are a person who sees the long-term trends. That's why you are here. That's why we look a little bit into the glass bowl for the future. But first, um, let us take a tiny look back because we, we're hopefully almost over the corona global pandemic at least in some countries in others it's looking like it's getting really bad right now um do you see a specific impact there because in germany what everybody what everybody has in mind is that was the, that was the time cash went out of favor and you started to pay cashless even ju just by touching the credit cards do you see like any big trends coming from that besides that I would, say, I would say that Germany is still kind of a cash society compared to other uh, societies in the world. Uh, but um, a, a little uh, comment uh, before we dive into the impact of the pandemic. You mentioned long-term trends. Now, it is not my habit to talk about flying cars. Maybe there will be flying cars, maybe not. 
or I prefer to discuss uh, the conditions upon which a certain future can be realized. So we always try to connect here what we see in the present or what something that just happened to infer basically how this is modifying uh, the next step and then create uh, a journey towards a future when value is generated. But the future doesn't happen by itself. Uh, it's made up on actions, made of actions that we take. So I'm trying to anchor those actions to the creation of value, right, for clients and for stakeholders. You go. I, I, I heard once a quote that forecasts are very difficult, especially concerning the future. <laughs> Well, you know, all of my literature, which is based on my theory and principles of financial market transparency, is about the fact that the future is open, which is a huge problem in banking and financial markets because the industry tends to sell predictions which cannot be sold. And that creates as consequences in the relationship with clients. Uh, when digital uh, takes over, there's no relationship that sells those predictions, which should be regulated to avoid FOMO. And therefore, the mechanics... Uh, are uh, impacted. Uh, so the real problem here for startup entrepreneurs to generate value is that they need to understand that digital mobile is a technology to demand when people more or less know what they want to look at. But most of the revenues that matter in banking are operated as an offer to every industry because we need to deal with the uncertainty of the future and therefore the industry creates narratives which are positioned through conversations. And when you eliminate the conversation technology, if it is demand driven, cannot support it. So there are techniques uh, that can be applied to mitigate that. But first and foremost, we need to re-understand uh, without romance uh, the way clients uh, make financial decisions, which differ from the way they make e-commerce decisions and blah, blah, blah. So all of this is part of my literature. Sorry, Paolo, when you talk about the romance, you refer to the time when you had um, a banker in a suit and a tie and a white button-down shirt, and he was sitting in a grandiose office and the wealthy people walked in and talked for a few hours and then they went back and left a lot of money at the bank, right? That That is what you refer to. When I talk about romance, I always think, I also think about a venture capitalist that doesn't wear a tie but pretends to understand how the future is shaped, creating a hype for the evaluation of a company. So that is still a romance, okay? So it's telling us stories that uh, don't exist. It's like the old discussion about uh, the intergenerational change. Uh, yes, uh, people might have different ways of accessing technology, but they're all exposed to fundamental uncertainty when it comes to finance because this is not e-commerce. And basically the way we position in front of that, if we eliminate fear of missing out, which should not be used because it doesn't comply with project standard, is very similar whether you're young or mm -hmm. you're old. And understanding that enables you to learn how to onboard clients on your platform that are not just there because it's cheap, it's free, but are there to do something to reward you for your effort and investments by paying access to that uh, platform. And that generates an economic model that makes sense uh, beyond the venture capitalist uh, volume uh, uh, expectation. So the problem of the industry today is that some volume can be generated, not in all uh, fintech corners, uh, but that volume needs to lead into um, an economic reward for the institutions so that they can continue to plug in investments to pay for salaries and to create innovation. And if that is not resolved, the initial uh, very risky capital uh, would dry up uh, and a uh, lot of time is wasted. Now, I understand that uh, it is a venture capitalist mantra to say we try here and there and something will pop up. And I'm like, well, I prefer to advise the entrepreneurs uh, how they can be that one that can make it happen, right? So they should not rely upon the chance of being the one that can basically uh, succeed them. So it's a different mm -hmm. approach. 
What what you refer to is, I do believe, referred to in venture capital as spray and pray <laughs> approach. <laughs> and by the way, you talked about volume, so you you totally think that uh, fintech is and will remain a volume business just due to the way it is set up. No, I believe that uh, it can focus on value and. Um, uh, we might be deviating a bit, but I remember when I opened uh, the IBM office in Shanghai with a presentation of my previous book, Fintech Innovation, that was in 2017. And there I had uh, a discussion with the audience about uh, the difference between volume and value. And, um, and that's when uh, the board of uh, the most digital bank among the urban banks of China reached out uh, for a conversation that led into a joint work that was published in Chinese named uh, Panorami Banking, which is a precursor of some of the content of my banks and fintech uh, platform economies as wanted to answer the question, how can a bank compete with the tech giants like uh, Alibaba or Tencent uh, owning WeChat because they already have volume. Mm-hmm. They don't even have super volume, they have uber volume. Okay, so mm-hmm. now they understood that basically they were wrong in thinking the platform strategy was to target volume competition, volume-based competition, so they had to redefine value instead in order to compete, right? So it's different perspective between convenience and the generation of value. Mm-hmm. And so that led to interesting conversations about how to change strategy for engaging with the uh, ecosystem around the platform interplay. and. And, and therefore, understanding this difference is important. However, volume is easy to underst- be understood. Value requires an axiology, a theory of value. So if you do not define value, you cannot digitize it. And so my effort in literature in the last few years uh, has been around identifying uh, the definition of value for clients uh, that enables them to appreciate and reward uh, the investment made to build a relationship that digital needs to support because it's very difficult to demonstrate that value in a noisy world without being supported by technology as well. But it's a completely different way of looking at the role of technology inside a refreshed business model that targets this new value or this hidden value. But, you know, I believe the audience will want to read the book to learn more about it. We'll provide some insights later on in the conversation. Yes, totally. Because may I give a few hints about those values values you can see the fintechs can generate for clients? Because that's not only approach the banks can use against big tech. As you said, they have Uber volume. They're, they're already really, really big. And so they could make money just on the volume of business there. Um, but when a fintech now starts up, um, I've heard they still do that. Um, what would be some of those values they could target to deliver in order to survive between the big banks, the smaller banks, the established fintechs and the big tech? Okay. There's an important concept uh, that is grounded to the understanding of value, which is, uh, a biological perspective on how we make financial decisions. So, so that framework is the banking invention quadrant, which has two axes. One axis is information and one is communication. It is through information and communication that uh, businesses are created uh, in financial services uh, to engage clients. Information is uh, typically the more symmetrical part of the banking business. Uh, 
and it's about volume because his payments uh, is uh, the credit function uh, therefore the appraisal of uh, the credit risk scoring uh, and the appetite of the bank and and that is where uh, if you like there is the typical play of the institutions uh, with a lot of data a lot of uh, financial information but that is also where the problem, especially for the entrepreneurs uh, in Europe uh, and the bankers in Europe occurs uh, because uh, the net interest margin uh, has been very, very poor uh, because payments are very competitive here. So the margins are much lower than in other constituencies. So it's difficult uh, to extract value because volumes need to grow much faster than uh, the uh, reduction of the interest rate margins. Even today, uh, given the fact that the interest rate might, might be raised, uh, some bankers are expecting uh, to be better off because they can press up more on the existing volumes. The problem is that that happens within the year, but if you think about the potential recession, they will fire back in terms of uh, the uh, basically uh, deterioration of uh, the credit quality of your portfolio, so the expectation of more non-performing loans. So it's a very complex landscape. So and now, if you want the volume, Okay, you really need to understand how to leverage payments, right, with the outside of the banking ecosystem to capture much bigger volumes and most likely to generate a different value that is not there in the transaction. So volume is typically about a price you tag to each transaction. But as the price goes down and down, the transaction can be limited in your banking environment. You move out of that one. You use that banking capability or open banking capability with a fintech to eliminate the friction in an external ecosystem and you allow that ecosystem to create new value on the interplay of uh, individuals uh, of companies uh, of corporate and therefore you try to grab that value which is the value of accessing a non-banking platform where banking is there to eliminate the friction so the the balance between the transaction revenue and the non-transaction revenue is in favor of the non-transaction revenue. But of course, right, there are some elements uh, that uh, participate into the the whole uh, the whole chain that are shared among uh, among the parties. But so banks are now learning that they need to be orchestrators of those ecosystems to grab that new value, or they need to be, um, if you like, um, participate participate participants in a way that they know how to grab that value. Right. So that really means resolving the business problem of clients, which is not finance. Finance is not the problem. It's always uh, an enabler. Right. So mm -hmm. it's not finance. It's solving the business problem or the personal problem. Mm -hmm. And then you have the other type of value that, uh, but you have a question, goes in the direction of communication. So the other um, uh, axis of the quadrant. Yes. Uh, where to start and where to stop. Um, first, for everybody who doesn't have a finance background, the interest rate margin is just um, to make it very simple. You give me money, I give you 1%, I lend it out the credit for 8%. Between 1% and 8%, there's 7%, and that is the interest rate margin. Yes, so basically when the interest rate is high, so you can add the spread on top, uh, that is the money you make with the client. So the coupon you pay when you have a mortgage, right? All of the, the payments you make. When the interest rate is low, also the spread on top of the interest rates uh, is lower. So the bank will get more, less money from you. So you know that you have zero interest rates, your mortgage is cheaper. If you have 
5% interest rates, your mortgage is uh, higher, more expensive for you. And that corresponds to more money they get into the bank. But then the bank has to use that money to remunerate the right of things, right? So the other side of, uh, of the game, because they take money and they need to reward the money as well that they lend to somebody or the credit risk, right? Because uh, the healthier economy, the lower the credit risk, but the recession economy implies uh, defaults, which unfortunately occur because not everybody can make it. Mm -hmm. uh, in 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 their business life, uh, and and that might impact basically the um, healthier performance of financial institutions and actually create more more problems. So all of these intricacies are at play today in a very different way compared to the world that we were used to live in before the global financial crisis. I know that a lot of your audience, Jorn, uh, is very young. I'm 52 years old. So, but before 2007, the world was basically different and the business world for the good and also for the bad in, in, in many cases. And, and that's the reason why when uh, Mario Draghi, the former chairman of uh, president of the European Central Bank, uh, left uh, office in 2019, uh, that's why he said to the uh, audience of journalists uh, answering a question if these new macroeconomic conditions would create the next financial crisis, he said that, well, I know that banks would love uh, positive rates and blah, 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 but basically said that the complexities of the macroeconomic condition will stay. So what needs to happen is that banks need to adjust the business model to the digitalization of financial services. And when central bankers talk, words matter. He didn't say, they need to digitize existing business models. He said they need to adjust the business models to the digitalization. So fintech entrepreneurs need to understand that clearly because if they pretend to use digital just to digitize an existing model, creating, for example, a marketplace for products, they will not succeed. The problem of the new banks, for example, they are not understanding how to grab more value because they're not generating more value on digital for clients, so they cannot be remunerated for that. So then you need to understand would implies a transformation of the business model. But now, if you do not know what is the distance between people and their decisions, when it comes to human-related traditional banking, you will not understand what you need to do to adjust the business model in a way that technology that is not a perfect fit for that uh, uh, gap reduction, what technology has to do in order to make it happen. So it's not easy, it's a mm -hmm. bit tricky, but it's foundational and it can be understood because once uh, you spend some time studying, you get the points right. And so that it can consequentially, consequen consequentially act. Okay, mm -hmm. and that is my role to help you basically see uh, all of these elements uh, which are out there, right? You just have to, to look at them with, um, with uh, um, the right perspective. Mm -hmm. What I've taken from your awesome from your awesome wrap up here with an adorable italian accent is i would define value as make it easier cheaper or more convenient for clients um to do something that they've done before maybe they completely redo something but they have to have something from it there there's a benefit the value you're talking about right yes and no convenience about information is not about communication, which is another axis for value. And uh, as I said, uh, convenience is a race to zero prices. So at some point, uh, you will not be able to price that convenience anymore. It's like um, you had to 
I don't know, go to the post office uh, when you wanted to buy something on Amazon and now you pay for one click. At some point, you assume that you're not paying for that. It's part of whatever price and the price is very competitive. So it becomes zero price. And you assume you need to be able to pay that way, right? Because it's your habit. Mm-hmm. So that commoditizes very fast. Convenience commoditizes very fast. And that's the reason why convenience enables you to interact differently with others. And the value is about uh, the need to interact with people. And therefore, the value is in accessing the platform, is not in the convenience of the individual pieces, uh, which get commoditized and sooner or later insourced uh, on the platform by the platform orchestrator. So that you need to be ready to understand that uh, convenience is just an initial step uh, for the generation of value. But the final value that will stabilize your business model is outside of the individual convenient transactions. And when I discuss the contextual banking platform strategy in the banks and fintech on platform economies, I therefore refer to the shift towards being capable of motivating users to pay for access that contextualized banking platform. Then there will be a completely different play when you look at the conscious banking platform strategy, which is also defined in the book, which is about more complex decision-making processes where the value is inside the relationship and needs to be revealed by technology. And it's a, it's a different way of, of creating that value. But ultimately, it's always about recognizing that the monetization shift out of products, out of transactions, into the outcomes, into the relationships differently played uh, between information intensity, contextual banking, or communication intensity, conscious banking, which typically goes around planning what management uh, insurance done also for the masses, not just for the ultra high net worth individuals. That is a very important statement, I do believe, that I've taken its, its focus on the outcome, not on the transaction, not making it convenient, but helping to achieve their goals, whatever that might be. Oh, yes. So the shift, uh, the foundational shift on platform economies that characterizes a big part of the fourth industrial revolution, which is a platform revolution, is a shift from outputs to outcomes. And uh, we need to clearly define that. Uh, otherwise, uh, we get mistaken. But that really explains why experience is important being a key component of the engagement model. But without understanding the shift of monetization from output out of products into outcomes, which is relationships, is not possible to plug in technology the right way to be basically rewarded for the investments in a sustainable way. Also, Paolo, you talked about bank being the orchestrator in such a platform, in such a network. Um, can you already give some pretty good examples where the banks are really good in orchestrating that because that would pretty much mean you have like for me my picture is right now you have one bank in the center and you have a lot of fintechs tech companies and other entities around it and the banks help to to get it flown uh, to get the flow smooth there okay so there would be uh, two very different examples uh, mm -hmm. i mentioned for uh, information and communication i mentioned uh, value, new value generated out of volume. And then I mentioned the uh, hidden value, which is revealed inside of the relationships. Mm -hmm. And now 
tell you. Um, when you think about uh, the um, contextual banking platform strategies, which are more around the intensification of the information quotient, you can think about an agri-farm business uh, where there are banks out there which are also trying to help um, the communities of farmers uh, in mm-hmm. their consequences uh, to interact uh, the one with the other differently, starting, for example, from uh, weather forecast using, uh, in, in, in our case, uh, the weather channel of IBM, which is the one you have on your iPhone is powered by IBM, um, in order to basically decide on which crop uh, basically to uh, to focus on, uh, given the, the global climate conditions. Uh, but then delves into how they can sell basically their harvest uh, and how they can be paid uh, and how they can lease the machinery and so on and so forth. But you see, those are by-side uh, opportunities uh, of a platform which is uh, centered in smoothing the supply chain and the interactions among economic actors uh, for a certain business uh, or a variety of different businesses. So now this can be generated by a non-bank, but there are now banks that want to be in that game, creating on the side um, an orchestration of those uh, ecosystem platforms. So platforms that basically operate at the level of making an ecosystem uh, um, functioning uh, with digital in better terms. On the other side, you have banks which are now focusing on um, uh, enriching uh, the advisory relationship with clients and recognizing that, um, think about the US, uh, you can now access an ETF investment uh, for zero embedded fees. And if you don't have an embedded fee, you cannot remunerate the linear value chain that goes from the manufacturer to the distributor, right? Mm -hmm. And and there is a reason why, um, for example, when I... Uh, I've been keynoting uh, for BlackRock, opening uh, some of their key conferences before the pandemic. And I crossed Larry Fink at the main stage of Morningstar in Chicago in 2017. And I remember Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, which is the largest manufacturer of investment products in the world, saying that he wanted uh, 10 years, 7 to 10 years from then, 2017 speech, uh, 30% 30% of his revenues not to come from products, but solutions. What he meant is that the products, the transactions are in a race to zero prices. So the value will be positioned at the level of the relationship between the bank, the advisor and the client. Then this technology to be orchestrated and to scale because you need to go beyond the number of limit, the number of clients you can manage in an individual relationship. So those guys are understanding this element as well. So now what happens is that somebody can also orchestrate that uh, advisory platform. So the advisor is uh, a network of individuals uh, that require support by technology to basically give a shape to the conversation with the clients uh, in a way that they're not inside the prediction of products, but they're inside the resolution of uh, the needs of individuals, so it's a planning perspective, it's a goal-based wealth management or a goal-based investing, basically conversation. And there you see again that uh, as on a platform, you need to have uh, the whole life of an individual using those information with more completeness. You have uh, two elements that are part of uh, a banking uh, a business model. One is uh, the liabilities, uh, that means uh, the mortgages, the loans, right? The liabilities of families and corporate. Mm-hmm. And on the other side, you have the investment opportunities uh, or the insurance needs. Now, most of these uh, products on the asset side commoditize. So you cannot personalize on those. That's another mistake of the fintech entrepreneurs focusing on personalization around assets and products, which are all uh, basically uh, highly correlated. Think about the tech stocks. Most of them went down the same way in the last year. So mm-hmm. stories, like relation. 
Now, the personalization occurs always when you look at the liabilities of individuals, because you have two children, I have none, right, and so on and so forth. So now what happens is that by seeing the client holistically inside the institution, not anymore siloed inside different business units, you can create incentives so that beyond the pricing of credit risk and market risk, which you have to do anyway, separately, you come up with an understanding on how clients can, pry, can pay for accessing that advisory platform. And so the role of the bank uh, being uh, capable of using technology and investing in technology is allow a variety of individuals that by themselves cannot do that to have a mean to reach out to their customers in a way that they can demonstrate the value of that open and transparent relationship. And there are banks which are basically doing that. You can think about the role of UBS or Morgan Stanley. Now they're not down the line to me uh, in terms of doing it all as it should be done. Okay, mm -hmm. so there are still gaps between what I see and what they've been doing, but I see that they're moving in the direction to be orchestrators of uh, planning and advisory platforms. Mm -hmm. I see, I see. Um, that also means the investment approach some VCs right now have in terms of fintech is very much focused on products and you if I understand you right, that may be the wrong approach for long-term success of the companies. Well, yes. Uh, I would also say when I was an entrepreneur myself, uh, I was more a scale-up than a startup uh, in intentions. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the venture capitalist uh, might want to, you know, get the bank and then you can sell to somebody else. Okay? get somebody else in so they get their reward anyway. Okay. All the way through. Mm -hmm. The instead uh, is to have uh, a long-term uh, investing perspective. Uh, so you need to ask yourself uh, how your company, how that company evolves uh, beyond uh, the initial hype, uh, right? Or the narrative around your uh, startup uh, evaluation, which is uh, a different story that I find way more interesting. Now, understanding how you evolve out of the initial simple-minded uh, effort because no startup can start uh, basically orchestrating the whole ecosystem, right? Mm -hmm. So very few can do that is to me important because understand if they have already defined in their business logic the limits of the initial proposition. And therefore they know that they will have to remediate it somehow along the way with partnership or with different investments. So they have a clear understanding of that. If they don't have they fall into the romance of the individual product. Some cases can, you know, work, but very, very few cases. Uh, and, and then typically those cases that work at every position inside through an MA prospect uh, somewhere else. Uh, and if they don't have the understanding, those somewhere else uh, of what the framework is, a lot of these uh, uh, start losing value, right? We, we saw that very often in, uh, in, in business life. So, so what I try to do is to make sure that we connect uh, and we anchor the long term and the short term with clear perspective so that we know how to save uh, the good. So the baby, when some of the dirty water is thrown out because not all investments uh, will be able to, uh, to, to resonate, right? And, and to remunerate um, uh, risk capital. I, I, I do believe we want to talk about 2023, but we have outlook very long term how banks and fintechs will work, will work together, will compete with, with each other on a very high 
level. Uh, uh, when people are now listening to this, and I do believe a few have to re-listen, I also have to re-listen to get like all the value out of that. What would be like two or three sentences that people should take with them in order to prepare for the next few years? If I've heard it correctly, that, that are forces that will be playing out for the next five to 10 years, because this structure is not so easily adjustable. Plus, we have a potential recession on the horizon here. Okay, so we just released as IBM the 2023 global outlook for banking and financial markets. And so this question comes uh, attend uh, conveniently. And this is actually a report that I believe you will enjoy reading. Uh, that is about uh, the economic model of financial institutions, uh, intersecting, of course, of fintech innovation around the need to basically grow and perform uh, in uncertain times. Uncertain times can also be an opportunity moment about uh, um, the cost and efficiency because uh, operations are too expensive given the contractual margins, which is, is, is a longer trend, right, or a medium-term trend that is happening everywhere, and at the same time remain compliant, especially considering the new risks that the cloud economy or the cyber economy is generating. So first of all, I would say three takeaways that matter in this conversation of uh, startup entrepreneurship. Um, there has to be a better link between uh, business and technology. What I saw uh, in many banks uh, and also in the startup ecosystem is uh, a hype around technology that mm -hmm. therefore looks for use cases to apply technology. While it is always about defining the problem you want to solve and then look for the technology that makes sense at that point in time. But sometimes uh, the investor scene uh, is uh, flipped. Okay, it's the buzzword on the technology piece. Uh, and then, you know, the use case is, uh, if you like, um, in, in the background. Uh, and then maybe technology is not at the level of maturity yet, or uh, the use case is not appropriate um, and it doesn't work out well. But in the meantime, we generate a lot of noise, right? A lot of, uh, lot of dust. So, so to me, it's important to rebalance uh, this relationship. I said before, adjust the business model to the digitalization of financial services. So the intentions needs to be right. Okay. And business and technology in this case are co-equal in making that adjustment because I need to understand the pros and cons, right? And, 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 and the engineering pieces uh, around uh, those adjustment elements. The second, which is uh, uh, also important, uh, we are moving uh, uh, steadily into the fourth industrial revolution, which is a data revolution. That means a platform revolution. Now that requires uh, a higher level of openness in corporate life from the way we work and the product and solutions we deliver to customers and clients. But that level of openness uh, uh, can only be fruitful and convenient in making uh, when we are grounding uh, our technology infrastructure on solid public cloud foundations, which is about the techniques by which uh, we can innovate uh, anywhere and everywhere, thinking about uh, the application management and the application creation. So you need to create, build once in a sense, right? You cannot invent the wheel every time you reposition your analytical piece uh, 
and you need to be capable of uh, managing that on different platforms for different purposes. So you can think about it this way. There was a time where technology was about computers. Mm-hmm. Now it is still about computers, like I love my MacBook. But in essence, I remember I visited the uh, um, HR center of the Banca d'Italia in Rome, just outside Rome, is for HR. There is a huge building with very tall ceiling because that was created in the 1970s to host uh, the computing operations, where at the time computers were bigger and bigger and bigger, right? So, so now we're not uh, in the hardware world themselves. Hardware is very important, right? But uh, technology moved uh, and it moved in the 80s uh, into software. And software is a very well defined industry specific. Uh, domain with an interface uh, mm-hmm. where basically you try to engage uh, users that want to do something right for their personal or their business life. But in the last years, we're now moving into analytics. Uh, analytics is basically the capability of sharing information across platforms, across software pieces. So everything opens up. So you need to understand clearly how to operate on every cloud on a variety of different environments where the techniques of making the job done are important. Otherwise, uh, you start up your company, your bank, uh, your new bank, your startup, mm-hmm. and then you know how to blur the line. I said before, it's not your initial product. Immediately know that that will not be sufficient. So everything you create to create that first product or solution needs to be capable of uh, transforming, being flexible to generate something else. So you can call it cloud native, uh, if you like the cloud world or whatever is about the techniques and the way of working. And, and this is now, this realization is happening now in banking as well. Uh, I think that uh, after the first years and after the pandemic of like hyperscaling access on cloud, they realize the, the connecting point between the infrastructure and the way of working. That is the, the people, right? Is, is always a secret source in everything. And the third and the last is, uh, is connected to this one. Uh, we said that the business model will be adjusted uh, for the digitalization of financial services. The digitalization is to occur uh, uh, basically on different ways of working, uh, leveraging an hybrid cloud uh, perspective. But uh, we all know that uh, a world that is becoming uh, more interconnected and uh, if you like more open is also a world where a world where new weaknesses will be exposed. Uh, that could be exploited by rogue actors. Uh, we are uh, in unfortunate uh, years of uh, uh, conflicts uh, with the war uh, in Ukraine. We are um, all uh, concerned about potential cyber attacks uh, uh, that are now involving possibly not just rogue actors, but also government. So they will be generated and maybe performed at a different scale. So maybe the next uh, systemic crisis will not be a financial crisis like the one we had in 2007, that was about uh, financial innovation, quantitative finance. So maybe the next systemic crisis will be operational and when it's operation is about technology. So 2023, uh, sitting on 2022 is the year where the cybersecurity aspect and the resiliency aspect of the industry came to the forefront, not just because of regulation, like the Dora regulation in Europe, but because of business, government, strategic industry uh, realization. And um, um, when, 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 when it comes to cybersecurity, then you make quantum leap into the future to say that. 
So now this is also the quantum uh, advantage uh, uh, decade. Uh, so where we believe that quantum will demonstrate uh, an advantage uh, as um, an, an integrated or uh, a complementary computing platform uh, uh, on, on, on traditional uh, uh, computing. Now we know that uh, um, quantum computing uh, might be capable of encrypting existing security algorithms. So a lot of investment are now directed uh, into quantum safe uh, cryptography. And you need to take care of that now because everything that you're storing today can be exposed uh, to manipulation in the future when new technology arrives, right? So you need to prepare for that moment. And in a sense that 2023 would be the year where this will be uh, more uh, uh, considered uh, shaping the way the industry will, will protect itself and infrastructure uh, going forward, which is for everybody's benefit, but is also relevant for the individual fintech. Uh, they typically exhibit a higher level of openness compared to traditional banking, uh, and they can't be exposed to, to cyber resilience or cyber attacks. Mm -hmm. Paolo, I do believe that was quite a tough load on information people have to think about and have to dissect right now. But basically, uh, what they get here free of charge is information is quality you usually only get, as he said, when you do a keynote for BlackRock uh, for one of the flagship events. So that is pretty good and exclusively on Startup Radio. Um, we will link down here in the show notes um, the report you mentioned, the IBM report that is going to go live the same day. Cut us some slack here. So basically, the, the, it there will be some mismatch during the course of the day, but the day after publication, we'll have it in the show notes in our Medium blog. Paolo. We planned this a little bit differently, but I really loved how this turned out. Love your outfit, love your accent. Hope to have you back very, very soon. <laughs> the future is open, so is the Startup Radio episode. <laughs> the future is open, totally fine. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking to you. Arrivederci. That's all, folks. Find more news, streams, events and interviews at www.startuprad.io. Remember, sharing is caring.